Listener Production. Dr. Gad Sad is an evolutionary behavioural scientist and a professor of marketing. His recent work focuses on happiness and the notion that everyone wants to be happy. The question is, how can I be happy? This conversation traverses many realms. How our mental health affects our physical health, how to live the life you want, not necessarily the life expected of you, and the tools that are needed to harness happiness and inner joy. The two most important decisions that you can make that either increase your likelihood of being happy or increase your likelihood to be miserable. And the two decisions are choosing the right spouse and choosing the right profession. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Through my years of studying and researching the connection between human behaviour, personal growth and transformation, I have discovered the keys to unlocking greatness within others. In this podcast, I share stories and experiences from my own teachings, along with conversations with inspiring guests to help you learn the simple tips, habits, practices and strategies to cultivate an extraordinary existence. Gad Sad is the author of many books, including The Parasitic Mind and his newest book, The Sad Truth About Happiness. In its essence, this episode shines a spotlight on how happiness is not merely a changeable mood, but a process toward which we can strive by following some basic steps. My hope is that this conversation inspires you to take control of your life and find the beauty that exists in yourself and the world around you. Dr. Gad said you grew up in Lebanon and lived as a Jewish boy through the Lebanese war. Can you tell us a bit about that time and your upbringing? I was born in Lebanon. I grew up there till the age of 11. We were part of the last bastion of Jews that had steadfastly refused to leave Lebanon, even though much of my extended family had already left Lebanon, Mm. my immediate family, my nuclear family, had stayed in Lebanon. We were well entrenched within Lebanese society. My parents were successful business people. They had all the right political connections. You know, in, in the Middle East, you, you you need to be connected even to, to make a parking ticket go away. Everything is based on connections. And then regrettably, the civil war started in 1975 when it became mm. very, very dangerous to be Jewish. Now, there, there had already been a lot of signs of you know Jewish intolerance in Lebanon growing up a lot of it I discuss in chapter one of my last book the parasitic mind but you know we we always felt reasonably safe but once the civil war broke out it was really impossible to stay and so we emigrated to Canada my parents though kept returning to Lebanon from 1975 to 1980 and then in 1980 on one of their return trips to Lebanon they were kidnapped by Fatah and uh, you know some really bad stuff happened to them, but uh, by the the grace of the cosmos, and because of our connections, we were able. Uh, I mean, I'm saying we, but I, I had nothing to do with it at that point. I was 15 years old, mm. uh, but you know, my family and through through my parents' connection, we were able to get them out. And then, so since 1980, no one has ever returned from my family to Lebanon. I want to talk a bit about your experience growing up in Lebanon because I know that was really hard for you and you saw anti-Semitism at its worst. And there is a story, if you could tell us a bit, about when you're at school one day. 
Right. Uh, so, uh, you know, often as happens, the teacher trying to get the, the kids to participate will go through some version of the exercise of what do you want to be when you grow up? And so the teacher that day had asked for, you know, each student to stand up and then say what they want to be. And so this one wants to be a doctor. This one wants to be a policeman. This one wants to be a soccer player. And a kid gets up and says, when I grow up, I want to be a Jew killer. And everybody, you know, started laughing and clapping. And of course, it's not as though it, it were, you know, were a secret that I was Jewish. And yet that gives you a sense of how normalized it was uh, to have open anti-Semitism. And so I tell, you know, many other stories in chapter one of the parasitic mind of, you know, growing up in the Middle East as a Jew. So for example, when I was five years old, Gamal Abdel Nasser, who was the president of Egypt, passed away. Uh, now, this is Egypt. This has nothing to do with Lebanon. And yet, as often happens in the Middle East, when people go out into the streets to kind of lament a death and they start all these, you know, protests and they start, you know, getting angry and so on, you would hear as the, as the procession is going by my uh, street in my neighborhood, you would hear, you know, death to Jews, death to Jews. And, you know, I'm this five-year-old boy kind of cowering, hiding, looking from my balcony. And I'm kind of looking at, but why are they screaming death to Jews? Like, I, I you know, I didn't quite understand it as mm. a five-year-old boy. So that was another example. So there was always this uh, pervasive anti-Semitism. You know, if if some, as I explain in the book, uh, I mean, I, I I say it as though I'm being jocular, but it, but it was definitely serious. Uh, if it's raining outside, curse the Jews. If it's too hot, curse the Jews. If you get diabetes, it's the Jews that gave it to it. If your wife cheated on you, it's the Jews that put that thought, that impure thought in her head. So it's just normalized. There is a causative, malevolent agent everywhere, and it's called the Jews. So even though people tell me, but but you were able to survive, clearly it wasn't that bad if you were able to survive there. Well, yes, you survived, but you certainly didn't go around advertising to everybody that you were Jewish and you didn't know which person around the corner was going to come and get you. And that's why once the war broke out, your neighbors became your enemies. Actually, about a few doors from our house, there was a Jewish family that was executed. So, really? you know, whether you lived or died depended on the vagaries of life. And uh, really, by an incredible mi miracle, I sit here talking to you today because I escaped death on too many occasions to to count on, on, on both fingers. Wow. And... When you ended up leaving Lebanon and you were on the plane, there's a sweet moment that your mum does with you. Yeah, that's, I mean, I picked, I'm going to tell the story in yes. a second, but I, I specifically tell these stories out of a much larger set of stories, exactly as you said, and thank you for asking, because they are so poignant. I mean, they're both beautiful and terribly tragic at the same time. So as we escaped uh, Beirut on that fateful day, you know, leaving Lebanon for the last time, at least for me for the last time, as I said, my parents returned after. And we cleared the uh, Lebanese airspace. The captain said so. And so my mother takes out, uh, I always, I, I, I left it vague because I can't remember if it was a high or a star of David, but I'm almost certain that it was a star of mm. David. So she puts it, she puts the star of David around my neck and she says, now you no longer have to hide your identity. Uh, and even as I say it right now, and I, I lived it, I'm getting goosebumps because yeah. it it Same. captures 
what it means to to grow up as a Jew in the Middle East. Yes, you were tolerated until you're not tolerated. Mm. And we see a lot of that stuff popping up now. I mean, there are so many minority groups that get targeted, not just Jewish people we've seen in Australia and America, like all different kind of things. And it's very sad. You've written so many books that have done so well, but you've got the sad truth about happiness. You've come to write a book about happiness, which, (laughs) you know, I think everyone needs that. Tell me what brought you to want to write about happiness? Yes, that's an amazing question. And actually one that I I do discuss in the first chapter. So I I appreciate you asking it. So I'd never thought exactly to your point, uh, I mean, many people have this idea of they want to get into the self-help market. That's how you know you sell books. I had it had never been on my radar, but the happenstance of life, just like how I I was exposed to evolutionary psychology during that first semester in in university uh, in my PhD. What ended up happening in this case is whenever I post something on social media that is prescriptive in nature, right? So like. I, in other words, it's some advice that to me seems quite obvious. That would often be the stuff that I would receive the the greatest amount of positive. Oh my God, Professor Saad, you've changed my life with it. Now, let me give you a concrete example. I've been on Joe Rogan, I think eight times, maybe. Probably the the clip that has received, I mean, in, in eight shows on Joe Rogan, that's about eight times three hours per show. That's 24 hours. That's a lot of talking on a lot of really important, deep, scientific, you know, political, religious, all kinds of profound things. It would not be uh, hyperbolic for me to state that probably the number one clip that has received the most impact was the, I think it's about an eight minute clip Hey, how did you lose your weight? So that was really? prescriptive, right? Wow. I'm t- I'm telling people yes. how to do something here. And so when I saw how people would respond to, you know, they trust me, right? They they trust me not just because I've got all the, you know, the the, cred- the scientific credentials and the fancy degrees and so on, but because when you're in the public eye for a long time and you know, you never err, right? One of the things that I always say is I have epistemic humility. I know what I know and I know what I don't know. So if you ask me a question mm. that I know for sure that I, I'm not going to be able to answer in any uh, intelligent way, I won't try to wing it. I'll yes. say, you know, Sarah, that's a great question, but that's above my pay grade. I, I simply don't know enough about this. And that creates trust with your audience members because they know that you don't bullshit because it will become very easy for people to lose trust in you if you start winging it and people find out that you said X, but it was really Y and so on. And mm. there, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of hours that you could consume of mine. And if I start BSing, you're going to quickly find out that I'm not to be trusted. And so people would write to me and say, you always, even when you're tackling very serious issues, like the stuff that I wrote about in the parasitic mind and all these culture war issues and the the parasitic ideas that are proliferating, you always seem to be happy and jovial. And, you know, I don't know how much of my stuff you follow, Sarah, but I've got all these satirical clips where... I'm making fun of stuff. I'll, you know, I'll wear a a you know a purple wig because I'm pretending to be a super woke person, uh, and so on. And that playfulness is very, if I can speak of yes. myself, it's very very uncommon for a professor. I mean, you know, one week I'm speaking at Stanford and USC. The following week, I'm wearing a pink wig and I'm hiding under my desk, pretending to be very afraid because Donald Trump just got elected. Well. 
So people would say, what's your secret? How, how are you so happy? So I said, you know what? I think it's time for me to write a book telling people about my secret. Now, so generally speaking, here's the story. About 50% of your happiness stems is inscribed in your genes. Some of us are born with the sunny dispositions, others are not. Now that might seem as though it's bad news. Oh, it's in the genes. But that means that still leaves 50% up for grabs. There's still 50% of my happiness score that is willful, that is dependent on the choices that I make, the mindsets that I adopt. And so what I basically do in the book is I say, okay, you know, I've, you know, I have a lot of experiences in my life. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to tell a story whereby I marry my personal secrets to happiness combined with the ancient wisdoms. Okay, here comes Epictetus, here comes Aristotle, here comes Seneca, here comes Marcus Aurelius. And then I'm going to link it to contemporary science and positive psychology and neuroscience and behavioral science, put all that together and you get the contemporary book. Yeah, that's so interesting. And one of the things you say is that variety is the spice of life. And I totally agree with that because, I mean, a lot of us obviously have jobs and a lot of jobs that people have do mean that they're going to do very same, samey things every day. You know, the concept of you do something that's not the same. So for example, they say like when you're driving to work, go a different way. It's novelty and complexity, that idea that brings happiness. So when we're overseas and we're seeing new things, it's really exciting and we're happy because it's like, wow, this is different. What a cultural experience. And it's breaking the norm of our everyday routines, which some people may like, but others, they become kind of quite monotonous and boring. But I'd love to know your research into that. I talk about various types of variety seeking. I talk about food variety seeking, exercise variety seeking, uh, sexual variety seeking. That's why the chapter has sometimes in bracket variety, because the pursuit of variety seeking in the sexual domain might be something that is inscribed in our genes, but might be condemned in the context of a monogamous union, right? Yes. So, so there are there are uh, tugs and pulls that are pulling you in different directions. On the one hand, I've got the desire to be in a long-term coupling with a stable partner because we've evolved romantic love precisely because we're a biparental species. So we want to pair bond for long enough to be able to raise those kids. But we've also, both men and women have evolved a desire for sexual variety. So how you navigate through that minefield, of course, is, is up for discussion. But the, the one that maybe I'll spend a bit of time talking about is the other type of variety seeking, which is intellectual variety seeking. Mm. Uh, so let, let's take, for example, in academia. The way that academics are trained is to be hyper specialists. So go very, very deeply in one area and keep pumping out papers that are plus incremental knowledge that will only be read by seven other pre specialists and maybe their spouses. And, and, you know, hopefully that will lead you to a, a, a big career. Now that's great. Look, I, I'm, I've published a million scientific papers and that's part of my job and I love doing it, but I, because I'm a profound variety seeker, certainly in the intellectual domain, I can't be a stay in your lane professor. Now, how do I instantiate that in my day-to-day. -day. So let me give you a few examples. If you look at my academic CV, I've published papers in medicine and bibliometrics and politics and evolutionary theory and mate choice and gift giving and uh, the effects of the menstrual cycle on women's 
choices, uh, how, conspicu how conspicuous consumption affects men's testosterone levels. So I've done endocrinology research. I've done twins research and behavioral genetics. I'm all over the place. Now, for many academics who evaluate my dossier, they say, ooh, that's, that's a asterisk against you. You seem to be all over the place. And I think that is perfectly incorrect. It's a lot more difficult to have interesting things to say in many scientific disciplines than it is to be a hyper-specialist in one. So that that intellectual antsiness does not allow me to restrict myself by artificial disciplinary boundaries. So that's one. Now let's push it further. I could have had a career where I just pump out a million scientific papers. Again, just to give you a sense, Sarah, uh, if, if your scientific paper gets cited by a hundred other academics 10 years after it's been published, uh, well, that's a very successful academic paper, a hundred papers. I could go on Joe Rogan and 20 million people just listen to why evolutionary psychology is, is beautiful and why you should be interested in studying evolutionary psychology. I'm not implying that one is more important than the other, but surely if we are uh, creators of truth and dispensers of truth, we need to be able to move beyond just speaking to a few other highbrow, highfalutin, ivory tower folks. I want to speak to Sarah on her show. I want to connect to people in Australia and I want to connect with with the the bro culture of uh, some of Joe Rogan's fans and I want in other words I don't have that intellectual arrogance that says I only speak to the anointed ones the mm. the special ones so that also is a form of intellectual variety seeking because I want to connect with all sorts of people that's why I started my show in 2014 people my academic colleagues would look down on this what what is this you're going on Joe Rogan and you do your show Professors don't do that. We're above that, right? We're we're in the ivory tower. Now all those universities contact me and say, tell us the secret. How did you become so famous? Well, 10 years ago, they looked down on it. Today, they want to emulate it. So so I think intellectual variety seeking is is truly the spice of life. I I just like you speak to all sorts of people, I get excited like a child every time I'm going to talk to someone new because they have a unique story to mm -hmm. tell. I've never told them that story. I've never heard their story. So there are so many landscapes to discover, so many people to discover. And so I think the one at the end of their life who's who's the wealthiest is, this, is the one who's accumulated the most number of experiences. Mm. And you can't do that if you're not a variety seeker. That's so true. And I want to talk about your career needs to have a higher purpose than a paycheck. From my own experience, I mean, I couldn't be happier. And like you, I mean, to talk to different people every day and just the knowledge that you walk away from and then knowing that you're helping others because they listen to the conversation and take something else away. But there's, you know, a million different careers where you can do a version of something similar or giving back. But I'd love to know what you learnt when you were diving into that one. I'll first begin with an anecdote and then I'll I'll answer your question more directly. So I have a chapter where I talk about the two most important decisions that you can make that either increase your likelihood of being happy or increase your likelihood to be miserable. And the two decisions are choosing the right spouse and choosing the right profession. And the answer is not so difficult to understand why that would be. When you wake up in the morning, if the person that's next to you is someone that makes you happy, you're off and running you know, with a smile on your face, if then the rest of the day you're doing something that makes you gleeful and gives you, you know, existential glee, then that's great. And then if you come home at night and go back to bed with the person that makes you happy, who's your, also your best friend, I think then you're on your way to climbing Mount Happiness. Now, of course, there are strategies that you can 
implement to increase the likelihood that you're making the right choice. We can never be sure that the person that we chose is the right one, but we there are certainly scientific principles that either increase the likelihood or decrease it. But speaking about a job, what I argue in the book is uh, a job that allows you to instantiate your creative impulse is the one that's most likely to provide you uh, with purpose and meaning. Mm. Now, creative impulse is a very big domain. There are many things that fit under this big tent. You can create by having a show like you do, right? I mean, before we've had this chat, the Sarah and Gad show did not exist. After we spend this hour, there will be a new thing that was uniquely created by Sarah hosting me on her platform. A chef also creates. There is a dish that existed that I'm going to go through a sensorial pleasure because he or she created it. A architect creates a beautiful building or a bridge. An artist creates. I create in my scientific research. I create in my online content. I create when I give a lecture. I create when I write those books. So uh, that provides that that's guaranteed to provide you more purpose and meaning than if you were an administrator. Now, of course, society also has to have bean counters and insurance adjusters and accountants. So I'm not denigrating them, but very few people are going to wake up in the morning and say, you know, you know, my, my life is beautiful because I'm an insurance adjuster. But if you are an artist or you are a, you know, a host of a show, or you are a filmmaker, or you are a scientist, you're creating that. There is nothing more magical and magisterial in the creative process. But speaking about the paycheck, I tell the story in the book. This is a, a, a story that a personal story that happened to me with a family member. I, out of respect for them, I don't mention who it is, but they will know who they are. Uh, I, I was, I was traveling to Brazil when I was a doctoral student with this particular family member who is very, uh, driven by monetary pursuits. This person had many fancy cars and Ferraris and Aston Martins and, you know, very conspicuous in, in the show-offing of all of these uh, status symbols. And uh, at the time I was, uh, so as I said, I was in my, uh, I think in my second or third, I think it was my third year of my PhD at Cornell. And there was a gentleman coming to Cornell to give a talk, to spend a couple of days to visit Cornell. His name is Herb Simon. Uh, Herb Simon, who's now, who's since passed away, was a huge figure in psychology of decision-making, which is the, the area of my doctoral dissertation. And my doctoral supervisor, who, as I mentioned earlier, was a cognitive psychologist, uh, knew him well on a personal level. Herb Simon happened to have won the Nobel Prize in economics in 1978. So he was a very, very admirable person that I really was keen on meeting. I even have kept a, a memo from my doctoral supervisor about, you know, here are some feedback from Herb Simon about your dissertation or something. And I still have it in my office because hmm. it was such a proud moment to be, to even have gotten the attention of this great uh, academic. Uh, so I was telling this uh, person as we were traveling to uh, Brazil, we were going to the Rio Carnival. Uh, I was saying, oh, I'm I'm going to meet this person, whatever. And uh, that person looks at me, you know, with disdain and says, who is this person? I could probably buy them 500 times over. And then I said, well, you may be able to buy them 500 times over, but while there might be 500 people who wait in line to hear every one of his syllables, no one gives a shit about anything you ever have to say, which of course that person did not like me answering that way. And as often happens in my family, they always say, you have such a stinging tongue, Gad. 
Well, no, I just don't put up with bullshit. I'm a purist. And so that's an example of the difference between, you know, being driven by higher goals than just the pursuit of money. Now, money is important to the extent, for example, in my case, I've always said that money has only entered even at all in my radar at this point in my career, because as I try to think whether I'm going to remain in academia or leave academia, I've never, I never thought that I would ever leave academia, but the reality is life is short. There are many pulls that can take you in different directions. As you know, there are a lot of nonsense that's happening in academia. It's becoming increasingly more difficult to be the academic that I am in academia. So, uh, I've often thought, okay, well, maybe I can, you know, move to Southern California and pursue other interests that can still allow me to be immersed in the creative process, but not necessarily going to a hundred administrative meetings with all kinds of bullshitters at the university or having to listen to some 21 year old student complaining about why they got a seven out of 10 in participation. Maybe that's not the best use of my time. And so money became an issue for me because if I decide or when I decide if I'll end up leaving academia or not depends on whether I've got the necessary amount of money that can grant me the escape strategy to leave. So money to me is only, it has no purpose other than instantiating a desire to continue to be more productive and creative, right? Uh, yeah, so I never wake up in the morning and say, oh my God, I'm so excited. This is how much money I've got in the bank. But I do wake up and say, oh, great. At six o'clock today, I get, I'm going to speak to Sarah. Mm -hmm. And at four, I've got this. That's what keeps me excited. I never think about money and about fancy cars. What is the level money-wise that brings happiness and then it doesn't matter? Like I've heard stats in the past, like it's really not that much money that you need to be as happy as someone who's a billionaire. Yeah, so I do actually cite uh, some of that work. I, I think there was a famous paper that had put the inflection point at $75,000. Yes, it was something like that. Exactly. Some more recent research has has argued that it's actually a bit more. Inflation. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, literally, that's true. Yes. But the more general point, is, it doesn't matter whether it's 75,000 or 90 or 140. There's only up to a point. I don't think that Elon Musk is inherently more happy than, because he's got $200 billion than someone who may have $20 million. As a matter of fact, there are very reasonable explanations for why the latter might be happier than Elon Musk, right? So up to a certain point where you're able to have all of your needs met, all those of your children met, that you can live a life of maximal dignity, anything beyond that, I think is just padding. It won't change much, right? So for example, I've often said, you know, let's say tomorrow, the next book, The Sad Truth About Happiness were to, you know, sell 10 million copies and I make $30 million. The main thing that would make me happy is that 10 million people read it. So first, I, I didn't even, I didn't even just, I didn't say money just now. I said, you know how much excited I get, Sarah, when I get a person sending me a selfie of them sitting at a beach in Dubai with a copy of one of my previous books. That's very humbling, right? Because that person at that moment has 1 million possible choices they can make as to how they wanna spend their time. But yet I won for that moment, for that one hour when they go to the beach, they've decided to dedicate that one hour to read something that I've created. 
that makes me super wealthy, as wealthy as Elon Musk, maybe wealthier, right? So, so I think, yes, money is nice. Uh, I don't want to live in a, you know, roach infested home. I don't want to be worried about where, what I'm going to eat tomorrow and whether my children mm. are going to have enough food. But beyond that, it, it, it doesn't matter. You don't take that to the grave, but the stuff that you leave behind, that makes you immortal. Why is it though that people who are billionaires, I know some obviously are happy, but like why does all that money not buy happiness? Because a lot of them have good jobs. So why isn't that extra money and being able to buy whatever you want, why doesn't that bring the happiness with it? Well, number one, remember we have fifty percent of our genes uh, of our happiness yes. that is inscribed in our genes. So if you're if you're a person who regrettably is not endowed with a sunny disposition, you can give me all the billions in the world. I don't wake up with a smile on my face. So okay, mm. putting that aside, uh, I wouldn't be as happy in my life if I didn't have the solace and security of a wonderful home life, right? Mm. I mean, because I would I would have created all of the things that I have, but there'd be nobody to share it with. There'd be nobody to, to, I mean, I'll give you a very quick story that speaks to that point. Uh, Last year in February of 2022, I had been invited to give a talk in Naples, Florida at an event organized by Hillsdale College, which is one of these colleges that are supremely anti-woke. One of the rare sort of bastions of true, you know, reason and liberty in the United States. And so uh, I gave a talk on the parasitic mind, my last book, and it was a massive audience. I mean, physical audience, maybe a thousand, you know, very prominent people and so on. And I was just on, you know, I was, you know, I was doing the gad show. And at the end of it, you know, you could sound the the, the audience was in a kind of rapturous mood. You could tell how much they appreciated. And as I finished and walked off the stage, uh, you know, my daughter came up to me, hugged me and she goes, I love you. I'm so proud of you. Mm. Now she was 13 at the time. Well, that moment was a lot more touching to me than when fancy professors write to me to say how much they admire me. Not that I don't appreciate when the fancy professors write to me, but the fact that my daughter who was 13 at the time could look at me with that kind of admiration made me feel very lucky and and wealthy. So so to answer your question, maybe the billionaire has really shitty kids. Maybe the yeah. billionaire has a wife that's cheating on him. Maybe, um, but that speaks to my point, which is you need all of those elements to truly feel fulfilled. But to our earlier point, you know, sexual variety seeking, for example, I was asked on a show yesterday, so what are your views on infidelity? Well, you know, life is about trade-offs, right? I mean, I, I don't pretend that there aren't a million gorgeous women that I can look at and say, oh my goodness, right? But then you have to make a decision. Are you, do you wanna live an authentic life with your partner? In which case, regrettably, you have to make choices and you can't go sleep with all of the beautiful women that you can otherwise sleep with. So, you know, there is no singular path to happiness, but for me, you know, having great, few very loyal friends that I can trust, having a very secure and healthy home life, having a great job that gives me purpose and meaning already makes me uh, very, very wealthy. Dr. Gad said, what is the best advice that you have ever been given? Okay, here it is. Because I have to think of it right away. And I often think about of all the things that my parents have ever told me, what's the one that resonated the most with me? And it it may or may not surprise you. So in, in the first chapter of uh, the parasitic mind, I talk about the two 
uh, life ideals that define my life, my trajectory in life, that how I live my life, and their truth and freedom. And and so I've always talked about this purity bubble that I live by because I have these sort of first principles, these deontological principles that guide my life. So, for example, honesty, authenticity, and so on. You know, integrity, dignity. And I remember uh, from a very young age, my mother would. I mean, I remember the first time she said it, but she she repeated it many additional times. So that that's going to answer your question about the best advice. But it's kind of cynical advice, unfortunately. She she looked at me whenever I would get upset at something that disappointed me in life. Some friend manipulated me or lied to me. Some girlfriend. This is when I'm much younger, mm. right? Uh, she would say to me, it, "It would do you good, God, to." understand that the world doesn't abide to your purity bubble in other words i i existed in a in a in a purity bubble which then causes me to uh have some expectations of others that are always going mm -hmm. to end up disappointing me because if i set the bar here and you always come here then maybe the problem is 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 me maybe maybe my standards are too exacting and so in a sense while i would like to think in a utopian beautiful world that no my purity bubble is the way the world should be and therefore everybody should be as pure as me i think the the incongruity between how i would like everybody to be because that's how i am and the incongruity of them not being that uh, has caused me a lot of pain at different points in my life. And had I been able to close that gap and listen to my mother, maybe I would have been better prepared to live in the real world rather than in my pure world. Mm. What do you wish for yourself? A, a long life, I hope, uh, just to always be doing stuff that is meaningful. Never, and I don't think I ever would, but never sacrificing my dignity for uh, instrumental reasons, continuing to live a, an interesting and dignified life so that people from around the world want to spend an hour chatting with me. So just living an honest, dignified life, hopefully never having any knockout news, God forbid, that are related to health, which you can't control. And as long as that happens, the rest is within my control. I'll take care of it. Do you have a favorite prayer or saying or mantra? Uh, I, I do I mean I'm not particularly religious even though I'm very much rooted in my Jewish identity because I lived my mm. Judaism in in the Middle East much more than even the Hasidic live it out here I'm I in my view I'm a lot more Jewish than they are I I escaped decapitation for being Jewish they didn't I I'm not necessarily uh, religious I just uh I don't know if it's a mantra but it's a, it's a way of life yes. um, I live uh, always walking very tall Morphologically, I'm not a tall person. I'm the average soccer player height. But uh, to walk tall means to always have a strong sense of self, a strong personhood. Not not arrogant or conceitedness, but presenting yourself to the world without any apology. Uh, I don't modulate who I am for instrumental reasons. So I think that's just the way that I live life. And that speaks to what I mentioned earlier, which is, my two life ideals are to be truthful, authentic, and therefore free of shackles. I don't modulate what I'm going to say because 
this person might not like it or that. Now, I don't go out of my way to offend people, but I will never not tell the truth uh, for some careerist reason. Yes. So as long as I keep doing that, that's really the mantra that drives my life. What is a life of greatness to you? A meaningful life. Uh, now, meaningful could mean many things. It doesn't mean that you have to be a famous person. It doesn't mean that you have to write popular books or host a great show or be Joe Rogan. Just so that when you're sitting at the end of your life, uh, which is actually something that I talk mm. about in my in the forthcoming book, if you could look back at your life with few, if any, regrets, then you win. The, the worst thing, I think, and I, I, I really go into quite a bit of details of that in, in that chapter in the book. Imagine you became an accountant because there was a need in the marketplace for accountants and your dad was an accountant and your grandfather was an accountant. Therefore, you come from a lo long line of accountants. It was a very practical decision that you made. You studied accounting, you became a CPA, you made tons of money. But in the back of your head, you always had dreamt of being an artist. That's really the passion. That's really what would have given you all the joy in life. Well, now you're 87, you're sitting on that proverbial porch and you say, well, you know, I've, I've led a great life and I've made tons of money and I've had all sorts of success. But, you know, I really wish that I had pursued being an artist. That's really what would have given me purpose and meaning. That's to me is sad. So I think that a great life is an authentic life. And uh, therefore, that's why the ancient Greeks are so great, because they already understood all this. The Delphic maxim of know thyself is exactly correct. So if you live according to that edict, hopefully you, you would have lived a great life. Gad said, thank you for the wisdom-filled conversation today. I'm so grateful. Oh, thank you so much. That was so much fun. I appreciate it. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Your Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my manifestation course and meditations, head to the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com or this week's episode show notes to find a link. If you love what you heard, we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. Listener.